0: Hell, I watched it when I was like five or something. It's just, so. it
1: explains so much.
0: It just. It does. I am a mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all
2: do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. To me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to vote. Uh, I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin.
1: All right, hi everyone. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following Films Network. So, this week we're doing a bit of a stretch with our connection. The movie coming out this week is Darren Aronofsky's Mother. And if you take a look at the posters, there's been a lot of people talking on Twitter and other places that maybe, maybe this is Darren Aronofsky's version of Rosemary's Baby. So, I took that very, very kind of tenuous connection as an opportunity to finally cover Rosemary's Baby. And to do that, I have a brand new guest. I have a horror enthusiast here on the show. I have Melissa Kay. So, Melissa, thank you for joining us.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Yes, of course. Anything you would like to publicize or have people follow you on Twitter?
0: Sure. I'm over at Twitter, at Mecca Melissa, And actually, everywhere else you can find <laughs> me. My personal website... Uh, my Medium account, Instagram, you name it. It's the same name everywhere.
1: Excellent. Yeah, and I would highly recommend you follow Melissa, one of my favorite follows on Twitter. So please go ahead and do that. So before we jump into kind of the psychology, this week we're talking about people pleasers and kind of people who are overly polite. Do you have a couple movie recommendations for us?
0: I do, actually. And as I was re-watching Rosemary's Baby, I definitely had the... The same kind of theme in mind, inspired, not necessarily with the people-pleasing, but in the pregnancy aspect Mm -hmm, of it. So I have two. And the first one is actually a recent flick that came out the tail end of last year called Prevenge.
1: Oh, it's a great movie. Yeah, I loved that one.
0: I loved it. It was so good. So much fun. Yeah, I mean, it's a British horror comedy, kind of like a slasher fic. I love that Alice Lowe starred in it. I mean, she also wrote and directed it, but I love that she starred in it as she was pregnant. So it was a really short filming cycle. I think I read that it was about like two to three weeks. That's crazy. Uh, Crazy, right? I mean, whenever you see, I mean, authenticity is there. She's actually that pregnant. So, yeah, I love that one. I thought it was really great, and it reminded me of that. And then another one I had is actually... It's very in tune with Rosemary's Baby. It's called To the Devil, A Daughter. It's one of my favorite Hammer films, starring Christopher Lee and Natasha Kinski. Wow. And I don't know if you've heard of it. I've
1: never even heard of it, but with this cast, I don't know how.
0: Oh, it's great. (laughs) It came out in, like, 1976. Okay. And... I mean, you know, Natasha's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. And she's a star, obviously. And Christopher Lee plays this really awesome satanic priest. And it's. That's
1: fitting. That sounds about right.
0: Right? Like, (laughs) of course he'd lead a satanic cult. I mean, (laughs) of course he would. Yep. And yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really similar to Rosemary's Baby. I think I even read somewhere that people compared it, you know, to a T, like mm-hmm. it's pretty much the same story, but it's a girl. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, just, you know, Christopher Lee has all these Satanists. He's like this fake priest. And basically they just want to get Natasha Kinsky to bone Satan. So <laughs> <laughs> that's it in a nutshell. And Excellent. it's really good. And Yeah, it's fun. You should definitely watch it.
1: Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. It just makes me think kind of as you were talking and after watching Rosemary's Baby that like, in terms of film and body horror, like pregnancy is the original body horror, like, and especially you talking about Prevenge really hit on that because she, in a lot of ways, like I read some interviews with her, like she kind of wrote that to deal with what she was going through. And how terrifying that can be, even though, you know, everyone in the world tells you it's natural and everyone goes through this. It still is like it's everything is changing and everything feels terrible for a while. Yeah. So there's
0: something living inside you that's, you know, kind of like a parasite living off you. I
1: mean, that is really what's happening. So, yeah. (laughs) So I think those are two uh, great recommendations and one at least I haven't seen. So I'm looking forward to checking that out for sure.
0: Awesome.
1: All right, so we will take a break. I will talk about People Pleasers, and then we will bring Melissa back to talk about Rosemary's Baby. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey, a group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them biweekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerdsofprey. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So today we're talking about kind of extreme politeness or people pleasers and whether that's a good or a bad thing. And the first article we're going to look at is from Psychology Today. And this is from Dr. Sherry Pagoto, and the article is simply titled, Are You a People Pleaser? How the Inability to Say No Can Lead to Health Consequences. So people pleaser isn't exactly a technical term. It's something that's found its way into our kind of cultural context, and it's pretty well known. Uh, and she says, you know, it's a really common behavioral pattern. Um, especially among people who are unable to lose weight or manage their health. So a people pleaser is basically the nicest and most helpful person you can imagine. They will never say no. You can always count on them when you ask a favor. And they actually, they spend a lot of their own time doing things for other people. They get their work done, they help others with their work, they make plans, they're always there for family and friends. So that sounds like a really good thing, but it can actually be really unhealthy as far as patterns of behavior. And in this article, she tells the story of this woman named Janet. So Janet is 42 years old and has two boys aged 11 and 13, and she works full time as a nurse. She's also 50 pounds overweight and hasn't lost any weight after 10 weeks in a weight loss program. So she and her therapist sit down to talk about what could be going wrong. And she says, like, she hasn't started exercising or keeping a journal for her diet, and she eats fast food many times a week. She says, I'm really busy. My only chance is if I get up at 5 a.m. and go walking, but then I get up and realize how many other things there are to do. So I get distracted making lunch for the boys, uh, responding to emails, doing things around the house, and I can't exercise after work because I have to. I have to drive the boys to their games. So they have soccer on Wednesday and Saturday and baseball on Tuesdays and karate on Friday. There's always something to do. So by the time they get home, they just want to eat. So she throws something together quick or gets a, gets, uh, gets fast food if she hasn't planned in advance. So then after they eat dinner, she feels really guilty and starts planning dinner for the next day. But then it's 9 p.m. and she's ready to fall asleep. So really, like, there's just, in her mind, there's no time and she gets exhausted. Janet is what we call a people pleaser all of her time if you notice in that story revolves around taking care of other people she's right in saying she has no time to exercise if she wants to keep all these commitments then she won't be able to exercise she actually has to carve out time for herself which is really hard for a people pleaser so why are people people pleasers so typically this intense need to please and care for other people is rooted in fear of rejection or fear of failure The fear of rejection is this underlying underlying feeling that if I don't do absolutely everything to make this person happy, happy, they might leave or stop caring about me. And this usually comes from early relationships in which love was conditional, especially with parents, or in which you actually got rejected or abandoned by an important person in your life. Now, the fear of failure is this underlying feeling that if I make a mistake here, I'm going to disappoint everybody and I'm going to get punished. This fear of failure usually arises from early experiences with severe punishment for small mistakes. So people who had really critical parents tend to to develop this people-pleasing pattern, this kind of opposite pattern. Early experiences with really harsh criticism and that punishment leads to a lot of anxiety upon attempting even the simplest of tasks. So even though the parent or other person in your life who brought out this criticism might no longer be there, the anxiety kind of lives on there for a really long time. So to deal with that anxiety, the people-pleasers tend to do everything they can to get things exactly right and make sure everyone is happy. So regardless of where this comes from, putting others' needs above your own develops into five, I mean, honestly, pretty bad consequences. So first, you tend to neglect yourself. As we saw in that story with Janet, they devote very little time to taking care of their own health. These efforts towards taking care of others takes over all this time that they need to be active, uh, do self care, plan healthy meals, any of that. So as a result, they're more prone to health problems. So if you are a people pleaser, it's unfortunate because your heart really is in the right place. Wanting to take care of people is a good thing, and more people should do it. But you can't do this at your own expense. You need balance. So taking care of yourself actually makes you better equipped to take care of others because then you've got energy and you're much more focused and you can actually take care of people better than you are when you're taking care of everyone nonstop. Second, you can tend to be passive aggressive or have resentment. So over time, people pleasers tend to get silently upset. At the people in their life because they are giving so much and getting so little in return. So this desire to be kind suppresses the anger for a while, but that unexpressed anger will often turn into passive aggression. So this can come across in the forms of sharp comments, sarcastic jokes, or even like subtle actions that let just a little bit of those negatives seep out. So it's the idea of like, oh, I'm going to do that favor for you, but I'm not going to do it well. So you can't really say anything. And actually, resentment is the biggest problem in the ends of relationships. One one thing that we know, as far as especially romantic relationships, if you have resentment, things are kind of doomed. Like, there's, there's not a lot of coming back from that. So really, the only way to avoid that is communicating your feelings. But then you have to take the risk that the other person might not be super happy with that, and they don't want to take responsibility for what has actually upset you. But the outcome doesn't actually matter as much as the fact that you communicated that you were upset. It lets people in your life know that when you are upset, you are going to tell them and you're not just going to do all the nice things. The third thing is it reduces your ability to enjoy other people and activities. So take Janet again, for example. She, she used to kind of enjoy going to her son's soccer, baseball, uh, and, and karate, right? But now when she's there, because she's got so much going on and so many other things she could or should be doing, she's constantly stressed and she can't even enjoy watching her son's. And eventually these kids are going to pick up on that. They're going to know that mom's not excited about it and they're going to feel like not supported. So some people would say like, well, at least I'm there, but actually being present, but disengaged with everything going on is not any better than not being there. So if she were to actually attend less frequently and use that time not to do other things, but to actually take care of herself, she would get more enjoyment from the games and her sons would notice and everybody would be a lot happier. Uh, number four, stress and depression. So stress, of course, we've done episodes on this, but it's just having having more on your plate than you can handle. So if you are constantly people-pleasing, then you're gonna be in this constant level of chronic stress, which is really dangerous for your health. So if you have this constant feeling like I'm always too busy and I'm doing everything for everyone and nothing for myself, you're in kind of a danger zone. Even if you're not having, you know, negative health consequences yet, It's probably going to happen. And of course, pulling out of this is really overwhelming. It's just like, I can't just stop. So it usually is helpful to identify like one thing you can give up and make time for yourself. Even if it's like just a half hour a week, that can make all the difference in the world. And it also, the fact that you do it once tells you and other people in your life that you can do it again. So that practice actually does help. And then we have fifth, which is probably the most obvious, and the most obvious in our film today is the fact that you can get taken advantage of. So if you're always saying yes every time somebody asks you something, people are going to assume you're going to say yes, and they will ask you things that they probably shouldn't, that are way over the top, way more than is reasonable. And you can actually end up becoming the target of people who, who are exploitive. and Because they will find, the exploitive people in your life will find, oh, you can't say no, then I'm going to take advantage until you do say no. And whether the person has a good, uh, whether the person is exploitive or they're innocent, it doesn't matter because you're going to get those requests and they will overwhelm you. And one good thing for personal responsibility to look at, if you feel like you are a people pleaser, is you can blame a person. You can blame a person for taking advantage of you one time, but after that, it's kind of on you because it's your job to set up boundaries and tell them like, this is not okay. And once you tell them it's not okay, if they're asking again, then you know that person doesn't have your best interest in heart. But of course, we have, again, this challenge that if everyone is always used to you saying yes from now on, people are going to get angry and disappointed when you say no. But it is really important to do your best to ignore those guilty feelings because, you know, like we mentioned, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people. So if taking care of people in your life is important to you, you need to take time to recharge. You know, as I was thinking about this theme, it was interesting to me because I think in general, when you hear the term people pleaser, there's this automatic negative connotation. Like oh they're just a people pleaser they'll they'll do anything to get on people's good side and that's not really what people pleasers are doing they do have this intense desire to help people but it's not this politeness that's in order to get something from someone and I think that's what we really see in this movie more than anything else from the character of Rosemary is that she just she doesn't know how to stand up for herself until maybe the end of the film she doesn't know how to not be polite. She has been kind of trained over life. I mean, who knows what her, her family life was like, What? Else, who knows what she's experienced before being with Guy, but she is just not willing to stand up for herself, not w- willing to say when things aren't okay when and say, I won't do that. And I think it really ends up costing her and we will definitely talk about that. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. We're gonna take a little break and then bring Melissa back to talk about Rosemary's Baby.
2: Watched the movie, check, Popped the popcorn. Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home. Check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. (laughs) Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that, you say? What's the Broken Brain podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave.
1: All right, so we are back. We're back to talk about the movie. So we always like to start with our history with the movies, so for me, it's pretty short. Actually, this this had been a movie that, like, for literally decades, had been those like, yeah, I'll watch that at some point. I'll, I'll get to that. Like, and it's ridiculous that I hadn't. I mean, the fact that it's Roman classic. Polanski it is a classic, and it's directed by Polanski. With you know, regardless of how you feel about him as a person, because he's pretty he's a pretty terrible person. uh But yeah. he also made one of. What I think is one of the best five movies ever in Chinatown. So I was kind of (laughs) like, why haven't I seen this? Uh, And I finally saw it last year for the first time and was pretty stunned by just how good it was. I think I always worry when I pick up a movie that's from like the 60s or 70s, like especially one – actually especially – movies that are in the horror genre because, you know, the effects will stand out and all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of worried about it, Uh, but I absolutely loved it, but not as much as I loved watching it again, Uh, because I think in a movie like this, that is a horror movie for sure, but is also a mystery. There are lots of little moments early in the film, kind of planting the seeds that you don't really notice on first viewing. And on second viewing, I was just kind of amazed at how well crafted it was. Uh, but what was, what's your history with Rosemary's Baby?
0: Well, I first watched it um, when I was a little girl, probably about seven. My mom's also That's appropriate. Business, right?
1: <laughs> seven, second Second grade. Okay.
0: Yeah. I was young. I mean, hell, I watched it when I was like five or something. It's just, so. it
1: explains so much. It, just, it does. Yeah. It
0: does. <laughs> <laughs> My mom... Breeded me to be exactly who I am yeah, so exactly. and she's she's like me times twenty <laughs> in that regard, so, so what
1: was your reaction when you were seven and watched this?
0: I liked it. I obviously missed a lot of the parts you know that just kind of went over my head with like the idea of rape and stuff like that didn't right you know, connect with me as a child, but I mean I liked it it was you know intense, it was suspenseful. And I distinctly remember watching it with my cousin, and we both got like really upset at the end because we didn't get to see the baby. Yeah, and yeah, we were yeah. Like, we want to see this devil baby with his <laughs> horns, and it's actually a really funny story. So afterwards, she and I went and we drew what we thought the baby was gonna look like. <laughs>
1: do you still have these pictures?
0: My like, mom does, and I have to find them. You do.
1: You need to share those. We do.
0: They're just like, you know, little baby, like horrible giants, And they're like, (laughs) for some reason, I thought it was going to be green and like have like fiery eyes like it. Yeah. So it it made a a big effect on me when I was, you know, small. But rewatching it as an adult, it blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, wow, this is a really good film in pretty much every way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really does hold up and it's pretty impressive. I mean, given given the time in which it was made and I think it was probably, I mean, we'll talk about this later, of course, but it doesn't depend on a lot of special effects outside of kind of the makeup used on Mia Farrow as she right. you know, gets, as she sick. gets sicker and, you know, as, as they say, looks like a piece of chalk, like you right. really <laughs> do see that effect, but it doesn't rely on a lot of, you know, kind of high level special effects, which I think is good. Um, I feel like we should just get into the movie because I have so many notes. It's ridiculous. There's no way I'm going to be able to cover everything. Like, I Sometimes I'll watch a movie and I'll have like a few notes here and there and I'm like, God, what did I really even take from this? This is not one of those movies. We brought up Roman Polanski already. So what did you think just generally of his direction in Rosemary's Baby?
0: Oh, I thought it was fantastic, actually. Um, I also read the book. I just so... read the
1: book like two weeks ago.
0: Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I read the book before I watched it again as an adult, mm-hmm. and it's eerily similar. I mean, I read somewhere, too, that Polanski made painstaking details to make sure, like, the color of her dress and, like, mm-hmm. the issue of The New Yorker was the exact one mentioned in the novel. And, you know, it's a pretty faithful adaptation. I, I think he did a phenomenal job. Like, he's really has a a really good way of just drawing us down into, like, the dread and paranoia that the characters feel. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't say this very often about movies or about directors, but this is almost perfect, his direction right. here. Like, I can't – like, usually when we talk about movie will be like, well, I might have changed this, I might have changed that, blah, blah, blah. But, like, there's not much here I would change. There are – a couple moments later in the film that I think are a little bit on the nose. And this may be because he's taking it straight from the novel as well. So it's like kind of, who do you blame here? But there's a shot of her in a doctor's office and she's, I mean, she's literally reading a a magazine and the magazine cover is, is God dead? And I'm like, OK, yeah. like we get it. Like, calm down, Roman, kind of <laughs> reel it in a little bit. But like that's such a minor thing and everything else is so impressive. Like one of the things I really noticed is, you know, I kind of talked about not noticing things the first time through and the shot where she first sees the charm when she meets the girl in the laundry room. And there is a really intense close up on this charm. And it tells yeah. us as an audience, you should be paying attention. This is important. But because right. the scene is so, it's so kind of nonchalant and it's just like a weird conversation. And you know, there's this, you know, weird smelling charm. You're like, whatever. That's, that's weird. But this apartment complex is kind of weird. Whatever. But as you watch it again, you're like, Oh, like this is, this is the curse. This is important. This is where it begins. And I, and I love that right. he, you know, there's a lot of showing and not telling. He really yes. does a great job of not having a lot of exposition and just kind of trusting the audience and being like, you'll figure it
0: out. Exactly. I loved that. I loved that. He was phenomenal.
1: And I also need to kind of ask you, especially, you know, having kind of a female perspective on this. I So as I'm watching the movie, I try my best to leave any thoughts about Roman Polanski and the terrible things he's done behind and just watch the movie and there is there is a rape scene in this movie um and i have heard a lot of different perspectives i'd heard people say like it wasn't as bad as they thought it would be i've heard people say like he revels in the rape of this character so what did you think about the way that scene was kind of portrayed and shot
0: oh i was i was disgusted i i i mean not only because obviously the rape itself with you know the beast satan was terrible and it's supposed to be terrifying, you know, and that's, that's the bad. But when she wakes up and she tells her husband guy and she's just like, I jumped, I was raped. And, and he was just like, Oh, you know, it was just me, you know, sleeping with you and kind of a necrophiliac way. Right. And I was it's just, just like, me
1: basically fucking your dead what? body. I mean, what's the problem? Like,
0: right. Like my mouth guy is such a winner. Really. Open. And I was just like, this is especially knowing you know about Polanski? I was just like, this is so wrong, mm-hmm. on in so many levels. Like clearly, he knows rape is bad, but he probably just thinks rape is bad because it's with the devil.
2: Mm.
0: Necessarily. Right, who did it
1: is the problem, but, like, not what was done. Husband,
0: <laughs> right, like, it's, it's fine if your husband sleeps with you while you're unconscious. Like that seems like to him that was a, an acceptable excuse for you know her dream.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I was really, I was disturbed by this, but I think, I, I would hope I would be just as disturbed by this regardless of who, as who filmed it. I kind of, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. the fact that Polanski did this and some of the things he did in his real life kind of line up is extra gross, but like just the way that was, this was filmed, there is a certain, there is a certain joy that is taken in the filming of this and and the and, and it's 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 more than a little disturbing, especially I think one of the things Polanski does a great job of here is there's a scene earlier in the movie where they first move in and they have this like romantic interlude on the floor, you know, and they don't. My
0: favorite scene, yeah,
1: and they don't have any furniture yet, and it's really sweet, like they're almost like they're having a picnic in their new home, and when you kind of contrast that scene with the rape scene like you have kind of the making love scene and then you have the rape scene like how different they are and it really kind of especially the second time through again like really keys you in to something is even more off than you think in this moment it's it's not quote-unquote just her husband raping her there is something darker and something more devious going on
0: oh man it was just it was very disturbing i mean just the fact that he said, you know, oh, it was like, you know, boning a dead body, pretty much. In any yeah. film, in any genre, any era, I would have been a little horrified.
1: Yeah, I mean I would hope so. I'd hope we're not like so dead inside after watching so many movies that this wouldn't disturb us. Because I think okay. I think I think he does revel in it, but I think it's also meant to be disturbing. Like the way that she is being watched in that sequence when she's not supposed to be awake. Like it's supposed to be horrifying and I think Right and I think we're supposed to care more about Rosemary than I think anybody else. And I think that is the moment where if you don't care for her, I think something might be wrong with you. Deep inside, because this is a woman who is being, like, victimized to the worst extent possible. And he he really does, he does not pull any punches, especially for 1968. I can't imagine audiences seeing this in the late 60s and what their reaction must have been if we in, like, 2017, who have seen some shit, are watching (laughs) this and are like, okay, that's messed up, like, even for now.
0: Yeah, and we have seen some shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> and I think I think
1: the best thing about Polanski is his attention to detail. Like there's not – to me, there's not a single moment in this film where it feels like a movie. Like this does feel very lived in. There is a moment when they first are looking at the apartment. And it's something I didn't notice the first time, but – it just shows how important appearances are for the people who live here because they are keeping this deep, dark secret. And there's a shot as they're in the elevator and the, the, the kind of guide showing them their new apartment, like starts picking lint off of, off of the, the guy who's running the elevator. And it's just this right. little quick moment, but it does tell you a lot about the people that live here that not only is this a nice place, but everything has to be perfect and everything has to be in its place.
0: That's interesting. I miss that. That's, yeah, it's very pointed too. It's kind of like this entitlement of like they own everything and every person yep. in that apartment. And
1: I don't think it's a, a coincidence that the person running the elevator is is a black character. Like, oh, of course not. They are, there is definitely an ownership going on there. I think Absolutely. I think as I was reading the book, I thought like one of the hardest things to figure out how to do is this whole process of her getting sicker and sicker and eating rawer and rawer meat. Uh, as the movie goes on. So how do you feel like that was handled? Cause it kind of start out with her, you know, as she's getting sick, she like just kind of lightly sears a steak and then starts eating it. And then like 20 minutes later in movie time, like she's eating raw hearts lot. and like, it's, it's a lot. So how, how do you feel? Do you feel like that worked in kind of the process of the movie?
0: Oh, absolutely! And I love the reveal when she sees her reflection on the. It's a beautiful shot, man. It's gorgeous. It really sticks with you. Uh, I really liked it a lot because, especially that scene, you know, it was very bright, vibrant red. And I've Mm -hmm. noticed that in all the scenes where she's with all, you know, the cult, the witches, um, there's very distinctive colors and Mm -hmm. pops of red. Um, and when she's alone, she's surrounded by more of, like, pastels and stuff. So I just right. feel like when she's eating that bloody scene, like, it's just very, you know.
1: Yeah, she's, she's really gone down that path. And you can Exactly. Really she's
0: it. become one yeah. with that.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, like, there's two shots that I will probably always remember from this movie. And there is a, a shot when the, the doctors near the end kind of team up and they all go to find her. and. Oh. I love the fact that she is seated and Guy, her husband, is kind of submissive in the shadows and you can never see the doctor's face. Like he is standing above her in this empowered position and you realize like Guy has done some terrible things, but there's some fear in him still like he right. he is in way over his head and so is she and just the way that shot is framed like just it gives it gives the audience so much again without without telling us and the other shot I, I'll always remember is her kind of walk near the end as she goes to get the knife and goes to like enter this well lit room where her child is like it's it's such an interesting uh path of shots because you have the kind of stereotypical horror shot where she's walking down this poorly lit hallway with a knife in her hand, kind of trembling. And then she enters this room where everything is lit and everyone is very calm. And you're, you're expecting this horrible scene. And really all you get until later on in that scene is you get a bunch of people standing around chit-chatting, drinking, and rocking a baby to sleep. And it's so, it's such a stunning difference from what you're expecting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's really eerie. It's really, it's kind of cool. I like it a lot.
1: Yeah, I do like that he kind of plays with those expectations of, quote unquote, what horror should be. And like, just like Rosemary, we are kind of thrown for a loop in that moment of just like, oh, this isn't, this is not what I expected to walk into. (laughs) Like I expected you all to freak out. There's like one person who's freaking out and everyone else is like, yeah, that's fine. Let her in. Exactly.
0: It's cool. Like, Does it take another sip of their drink. You right.
1: Know? As if nothing was going on. Absolutely. <laughs> so I really do think, I mean, Polanski has a lot of great films. He's got this. He's got Chinatown. Uh, he's Repulsion. got Repulsion, The Tenant. Yeah. I mean, there are some great, great films. This, like, to me, might be his best directed. Like, it's it, – there's such kind of a soft hand – behind the camera here that you just feel like you're kind of being guided through this. Just you're figuring it out as Rosemary is too. And I exactly. think that's, that's kind of the best thing about it.
0: Yeah, we definitely, we feel that same helplessness, Yeah, you know, that same drive that she does. Like it's, it's definitely very character driven.
1: So as far as the acting, um I think kind of the most important person to talk to talk about obviously is Mia Farrow, because I think she is the linchpin of this movie. Yes. Um, And it's interesting because if you listen to, like, the quality of her voice and the way she she acts, I could see people not appreciating Mia Farrow in this role. The kind of high-pitched tone to her voice, the kind of placating wife going on. So it's like, but if you don't love Rosemary, if you don't care about her, then this movie falls apart 20 minutes in. So how did you feel about Mia Farrow's performance here?
0: Oh, I loved it. I think she did an amazing job, especially for an actress, you know, in that time period in the 60s where, you know, woman usually played the role of subordinate Mm -hmm. in a patriarchal society. And she was just kind of playing that, you know, almost Stepford wife type Mm -hmm. role, filling her duty and, I mean it, it worked for me absolutely I was drawn in completely by her performance
1: Yeah I mean I I was really impressed by this because like it's funny when I when I watched this the first time like the, my only connection to Mia Farrow of all things is The Last Unicorn like that is the voice <laughs> that I hear <laughs> <The great
0: one. laughs> So I'm
1: always kind of like oh, I don't know I feel about seeing her actually in a movie but I think I think that I mean you mentioned like almost stepford wife but the stepford wife in this way that that she's kind. It's not, it's not in a way where she's trying to get something or she's been created in this perfect way. Like she, she is actually a woman who cares so much for guy that she really does care about making him happy. And the arc that she has to the point where they get in that fight right before the the baby starts kicking and kind of ruins everything in that moment. Like it's, it's really impressive because, because she is playing that kind of meek character for most of the movie it would be really easy for that scene to feel like overwrought and ridiculous, but the way her her panic builds throughout the movie makes that scene work. And I just, every time I oh. watch this, I get more and more impressed with her performance.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's super believable. Like she does a great job. I also kind of like how, you know, she is, she was primed to be, you know, a very kind, sweet person, but I also got the sense that she was a bit, you know, rebellious. Like Mm -hmm. All her sisters and brothers, you know, they had, you know, what, four, two kids. 27 kids between us. right? She's like, oh, yeah, we're planning on it. You know, like she's like the cooler girl. So I, I liked that. I got that vibe from her, too.
1: Yeah. And I think you can also see that in the scene where she's, you know, talking to her new best friend in the laundry room. Like, you you get yes. this sense that she, because she has kind of taken a different path, she doesn't have a lot of female friendships. So that's why when that character dies, it's a really important moment for her. Like, it is something being removed from her in that moment. And she... You know, it affects her emotionally, not just because a person died, but because this is another example of, you know, something being taken from me and I'm alone now in this new place while my husband goes out and has this fabulous career. Like she stays home and, you know, picks out window treatments and cleans the house and yeah.
0: And I stuck with this weird old couple. Oh,
1: yes. We'll we'll get to them. Uh, so speaking of her husband, so John Cassavetes plays Guy Woodhouse. And I, I think it's interesting just that the character's name is Guy. Like he's, I don't yeah. think he's, in a lot of ways, I don't think he's supposed to stand out. He is a tool that these people use to get to Rosemary. But I think the most impressive thing about Guy is that he's really charming. And he's really charismatic. And even when he does terrible things, because Rosemary doesn't hate him, you want to believe the best in him, too. So I really kind of love this performance from John Cassavetes, even though, like, deep down, he is awful. Like, he does, like, he betrays her. He rapes her. He does kind of every terrible thing you can imagine.
0: (laughs) Oh, see, I, like, I hated him a lot, actually. I think he did a great job um, playing guy. And I... I also like your point about his name being a guy because that's just what he is. He's just a tool, you know, he just he's not worthy of a real name because he's probably not a real member of this coven. Right. But I mean, I just didn't like the way he spoke to her. Maybe yeah. it was just like yeah. a, a personal thing, you know. I look awful.
2: What are you talking about? You look great. It's that haircut that looks awful. You want the truth, honey. That's the worst mistake you ever made.
0: And I mean, uh I mean, he he himself did a good job. And within acting, you know, like he mm-hmm. was trying to act a certain way with her. But I don't know. I just really I did not like his character at all.
1: And yeah. Did, I mean, I think afraid. if you watch it again, you can kind of see where he turns and he gets he gets vicious. And in this way where given the time, she can't really. She can't really comment too much on it. He's not being like so vicious. He's not like walking in and being like, you're the worst person in the world. You're garbage, hitting her, anything like that. But like these cutting comments, like. like yes, I, and it's I, cold. Yeah, and I thought like as someone who's married, as a husband, if if you don't like your wife's haircut, there's a way to say it that's not, that's the biggest mistake you've ever made. Right? Um I was
0: like. I was like, he did not.
1: I was like, <laughs> really, guy, what do you have to gain from saying that like right? nothing good Especially comes you're the of
0: that of your unborn child right you can be an extra little nice you could you just know? say
1: it's not my favorite but it's fine like that's enough you don't have to like jesus man it's not like you know it's oh, not like it... she has bald oh, spots or it's right
0: i was just like oh my god i would have slapped him in the face yeah he
1: definitely favorite. definitely would have deserved it yeah absolutely <laughs> So now we move to the cast of that Minnie and Roman, played by Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmer. And I just have to say, Ruth Gordon might be my favorite performance in this movie. Like I despised her from the beginning, but I have met people like this. Like this is a real thing. This this you know this the nosiest of the of the nosy, like asking how much things cost and making these judgments as they feel welcome to just walk into your house. Like she made me uncomfortable. And to me, that is what made this such a good performance.
0: Absolutely. So relatable. I mean, I grew up in a society with people like that, you know, just family-wise. Mm-hmm. And so it's it was almost, you know, just... Almost triggering. I hate to use that word, but
1: right, like oh, I've been here before. I don't like this. Like
0: oh my god, like I know this person. I saw them every, you know, Friday night at Shabbat. You know, like so, it it was very like oh, I know this girl, and I don't like them immediately. Fake. Yeah, I knew they were the villains right off the bat. And I think even though it, I knew, but you know,
1: Right. And I, I think it's interesting that Roman's character is so engaging and charming and just kind of takes everything with a smile. Like even when she is getting on his case about, you know, putting drops of alcohol on the ground, like it's like it's not that big a deal. You need to calm down. But he just kind of takes it all in stride and is just like, you know, this is the woman I live with and I know – I know all of her, I know her ins and outs. I know how she's going to react to things and it's fine. And I kind of, kind of adore their interactions where he just kind of lets her overreact to things and he just kind of moves on and they have this relationship that somehow kind of works.
0: It does. Yeah. I like, it's kind of like, you know, he's, she's like this little pet and he's like, Oh, they're there. She's just being her, you right. know, no big deal. I'm gonna take a <laughs> sip of my scotch and right. move right along. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. I think I think the weirdest thing about this movie, and I posted this on Twitter as I was watching it, that I always forget Charles Grodin is in this movie as one of the other doctors, and it like blows my mind every time that like he right. he like essentially probably started out here. He can't have had many roles before nineteen sixty eight. No. And then his career took this weird trajectory into comedy, uh, because he is so good at that deadpan humor, and it reminds me of watching something like uh, if you watch like early Leslie Nielsen, like before he did Airplane, uh, he was a very serious like soap opera kind of actor. So it's really interesting to see like what we're kind of expecting because Charles Grodin shows up on screen and I want to laugh. And it's such a serious character. And oh, yeah. and I think that's one of the most affecting parts of the movie is when he betrays Rosemary too. Because yes. we're like, finally, someone we can trust, someone outside of this circle. And then it just, it really hammers home either like he's a part of this or this is what happens when people are too well respected within their field. Is that they're, they're never going to believe anything bad about them. Just like all these people in this like rich hoity-toity apartment complex, no one would think anything bad would happen there because money is there and class is there. And it's the same thing with Dr. Saperstein.
0: Right, exactly. Like, oh, he's a doctor, you know. Yeah, of and one of the best. Him. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I know that name. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I know he. He made me laugh too, but he looks so cute and young. I Very know
1: he's face. adorable. Absolutely. I know.
0: <laughs> it's just like, oh, you're so sweet, and and he grew up to have really big dogs. Yes, except
1: <laughs> Beethoven was the first thing in my mind <laughs> as I'm watching this movie. Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's let's move to the script. So, of course, this is – I mean, after reading the book, like, I do think this is one of the few works that the movie is better than the book. But that's not a shot at the book. Like, I think this movie is this phenomenal. Like, this is top-level yeah. stuff. So to say the book isn't as good as this is not really an insult. It's just like, okay, it's not one of the best books ever written. And this is maybe one of the best mo- movies I've ever seen. So, Right. Um, and it is in a lot of ways. Like, there's – There's a little more detail in the book, but not by much. I mean, there's, I mean, this is almost like word for word straight from the page onto the screen.
0: Um, Exactly. And you just read it. So it's probably very fresh in your mind. Yes.
1: Yes. I was just like, I mean, I was actually, I think that may have colored my experience of reading the book. I was like, yeah, okay. So that happened just like it did in the movie I just watched. Like, (laughs) well, that's not exciting. I I was hoping that there were a bunch of changes made and, there really weren't so hardly any yeah so what did you think of the script in general
0: well i thought it was fantastic i didn't really think it was too wordy in any parts and like i read the novel before i saw the movie again as a you know an adult and it's different that way he followed the script the novel to a t like every minute detail I thought it was phenomenal. It worked.
1: Yeah. I think one of the major differences is I, I feel like Hutch shows up a little earlier in the, in the film, which I think Mm. is a really smart decision because it's Mm -hmm. one of my few complaints in the book is that Hutch like kind of shows up out of nowhere as this, Oh yeah. My friend that we haven't mentioned in the first 150 pages of this book, he shows up with this, Oh, something's wrong here. Let me do some research for you. Like he definitely is kind of a little bit of a deus ex machina that fails, Um, but I like that he's introduced early in the book. So we get a sense of not only Rosemary's connection to him, but Guy's too. So when Guy turns against him later in the film, you do again feel like something is wrong. But I think, I think what this script does better than anything else is that as we're watching the movie, we have this feeling that something is wrong. But in even until the very end, I don't think we're totally sure of how it's going, how it's going to wrap up. Like, is, is Rosemary, is it, like, okay, is Rosemary right? Are these people all devil worshippers? Is Guy completely right, and she's blowing things out of proportion? Or is it somewhere in between? And I think we really don't know that until the final frames.
0: Exactly. Oh, I loved that part of it, you know, the ambiguity. Like, are we paranoid and just feeling what she's feeling? Mm-hmm. And But I also like that he gave us so much information, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, like, these people were bad, like— Here's Hutch over here saying her books on witchcraft and telling them that basically these other people, you know, are that uh, anagram for the real name. Mm -hmm. But we still don't for sure know until she gets to the baby.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, until people start screaming, hail Satan. Like, we're like, okay, is it really? Oh, yeah, it is really that bad. Okay. Uh, So Rosemary (laughs) is right from the beginning. And the thing I, another thing I like in this script is that from the beginning, they show Rosemary as someone who not only notices things that are out of place and wrong, but someone who is smart. Like who figures things out like there is a like at the very beginning when they're you could see her kind of working out like why is this piece of furniture been moved in front of the closet? Why wouldn't she want to be able to get to these things that are here? So they set her up as this character who's like, oh, no, I'm not just going to accept what's going on here. Like she is a thinker and she is and she analyzes. And I think that is one of the things for me at least that endeared me to Rosemary is that she's not this stereotypical housewife. She's not this this woman who's just gonna like, well, just take care of the home and take care of care of my husband. I guess what he says is right. And even the morning after that rape scene, I, I like the fact that they kind of especially for nineteen sixty eight, that they're talking about consent. They're talking about the fact that, like, this is not okay. even though there were periods of time, especially maybe a decade before this, that, like, honestly, if you if you wrote a book or made a movie about a husband taking advantage of his wife while she was inebriated, it would just be like, well, that's his wife. It's okay. And I love that they actually brought that up. It was like, that's not okay. You could have waited till this morning, you know, and I I, I like that they actually went to that trouble.
0: Yeah, I like that, too. And I really do like that, that he presented her as this very smart, curious person. Like that's what works. That's why we sympathize with her so well, I think.
1: There there's also a really nice touch when we when we're first kind of introduced to the cast of vets through through the neighbor who ends up, you know, jumping off the roof essentially. Where she makes a comment that she said, well, at first, you know, I thought they were, you know, giving me a place to say for some weird sex thing. And I liked it. they kind Christ. of threw that in to kind of throw you off and to be like, oh, they are just nice old people. She's been there for a long time and they haven't taken advantage of her. They haven't asked anything of her. Maybe we should, Maybe she's just, you know, she's just a nosy old lady and that's who she is. That's fine. We should just forgive it. And there's lots of moments like that where they just kind of throw in. These little moments, like things like where they're playing to Guy's narcissism, like when they're first having that dinner and him talking about like, oh, I noticed you in this play and this this movement you did with your hand. And then as you watch it over again, you're like, oh, he is playing him from the very beginning. He knows exactly yeah. what his weakness is and he's going to use it to get what he and what his – is Lord Satan wants. And it's just, right. it's so subtly done that like when you're watching it one time through, like you don't even really notice it. You're just like, Oh, that's a nice thing to say. And then as you think about right. the ending, you're like, Oh man, he, he figured him out within minutes. Like he, yeah. he knew like this actor, I know how to get to him.
0: Yeah. They were smart. I mean, they played them from the beginning.
1: So the last thing I think I want to talk about is the ending, uh, which you kind of brought up uh, in the beginning there. Um So, you know, essentially we have, you know, Rosemary comes in with the knife and she eventually <laughs> like relatively calms down and has this moment. And this is actually, I think, Bia Farrow's best moment in the film. Where so, in the book, there's a lot of kind of internal monologue stuff going on where she's like, "Oh, it's still my kid. I could take care of him, I could make things better. And you have to get that in like ten seconds where her face changes from this rage to kind of softening and saying yes. that saying that line of like, you're rocking him too fast and getting right. all that maternal care out in in this one line. Um, so I love, love that moment. And I was just wondering as you were watching it, how did you feel as she like changed from this woman who is kind of out for blood and really aggressive back to maybe this more, a little bit more submissive, a little bit more caretaking character?
0: I think it was just a general acceptance, you know? I mean, she's in a room full of Satanists, and she hears the baby crying and it's just like this maternal instinct. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just got the sense that she was like, you know, well, if I take care of this baby, you know, it'll be mine. All
1: right. And it's nature you know, versus nurture, right? Like, can you change exactly. the Antichrist into something better if there's a caring mother involved?
0: Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I mean, she might not have seen the bad seed or anything. Right.
1: Yeah. But <laughs> Some children are just doomed. Like, there's nothing you could do.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I do like it. And I don't know, I mean, I probably if I was in the same scenario, I would have definitely done the same thing. You know, I wouldn't have been like, have the baby, I would have been like, I'm going to try to raise it my way.
1: Right. Do you do you still have the moment when you watch it now that you had when you were seven, where you just you want to see what the baby looks like? Does it still irk you? Or are you more okay with it? Yes,
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Like, I, I mean, you know, If I hadn't wanted to so badly when I was a kid, I probably wouldn't have cared as much. Sure. Because, you know, nowadays, films, especially in the horror genre, just thrive on kind of explaining, not all of them, but like a lot, you know, explain more than they should. Especially
1: the kind of mainstream horror. Like I think I think you can find some, you know, under the radar horror, because there's so much out there. Because I mean, let's be honest, horror is one of the you know, most cost effective genres to make. So new filmmakers starting out can make some really amazing stuff um, yes. that doesn't kind of, We're you know, spoon feed it.
0: Support, actually. Yeah. But there, there's some out there, like, like you said, kind of in the mainstream ones where they do like to show everything or explain everything. Right. And, you know, nowadays I would have been like, let's see that baby. Right. I want to see it, you know? <laughs> But, but I love that we don't see it now.
1: Yeah, I do too. I think, I think the first time I watched it, I did still have that moment. And I'm in my late thirties where I was like, you spent all this time building a hail Satan. He's the Antichrist. Like, what, let me see the, like the beast child. Like, come right? on. Like, see the eye. you know, built this I'm up. Serious. Yeah. I mean, they make this comment about he has his father's eyes, which is a great line. It's fantastic.
0: Amazing.
1: But in love. watching it again, I am glad, like in terms of a movie from the 60s aging well, I'm glad that they didn't because there's almost no way that that's going to look good, you know, 40, no. 50 years later. Like it's just going to it's gonna stand out. It would have
0: been too hokey. Way too hokey. No, I, I love the illusion of it because, you know, there's no straight up, Horror in this you know right. you know I mean there is that rape scene where you see like his claws and like you know kind of like his blurry eyes and face when he's um you know raping her mm-hmm. but you know it's it's very suggested you're not seeing like this little baby in a crib that's
1: right gonna... and it's all in shadow and all exactly yeah. yeah definitely
0: and it's a dream sequence so you know right. so it doesn't
1: have to look real it doesn't have to look like real life which which helps it a lot i think
0: exactly so speaking of that
1: now we move to production value so the first thing i wanted to bring up actually is the fashion in this movie
0: oh oh my
1: god it's perfect i'm
0: obsessed I'm like, obsessed it's just fantastic i remember i wrote down like little notes i'm like i love these girls fur coats yeah haircut i want it so.
1: and like every outfit that rosemary has on it's like it's at one at one level it's like you know, chic and beautiful and model perfect. But it also looks like something that a person like Rosemary would wear. Not only her, but the narcissist that she is married. That it wouldn't surprise me that that's how he would, you know, if he went and shopped for her and bought her clothes and went shopping with her, that these are the types of things he would have, like, a really strong positive reaction to. And the other thing is the apartment itself. Like, it's gorgeous. It's like...
2: Is stunning
1: fantastic. like you can understand why Rosemary has that reaction of like we need to live here
0: right I would have too Absolutely. like I know like
1: Satan worshippers and you know poison but still that is a really nice apartment
0: that is gorgeous <laughs> hell I would live there if there were Satanists like it's... bring them just yep. kidding but... <laughs> I mean that place was nice and yep. it was in what Central Park
1: yep you can't beat oh, that
0: That's perfect location yep I mean, I feel like the apartment was almost a character in itself. Oh,
1: definitely. Especially as the movie ends and she's escaping the apartment. Like, it does have its own sense of something, for
0: sure. Yeah, like, it's very, like, alive and, like, I'm going to expose you to this room and yep. all the hidden, you know, corners and the closets. But, I mean, I love the, the interior decoration. It was just yep. so lush, so beautiful.
1: Yeah, totally agreed. And I think the most... The most impressive uh, production value aspect, of course, is the makeup done on Rosemary as the movie goes on, uh, and it's really interesting to watch this again because there are there is a process that is going on that I think it, watching it the first time, especially if you're not like uber focused on it, you're not really noticing until things get really bad. And then you're like, oh my god the fuck happened to rosemary like she looks right. like she, she is going to die like she or she looks like she died yesterday like this is yeah. not a good look for rosemary but as you watch it again like every scene after after the pregnancy starts like she looks more and more pale more and more sickly and it is Short such it's,
0: I'm like, yeah well,
1: and it's, it's really subtle out. as it moves on it doesn't seem like it by the end because she does look like death warmed over but like there is a process going on that's really impressive
0: yeah, I love how subtle it was. Because I remember when Hutch first saw her and he's like, I thought you were supposed to gain weight when you were pregnant. Right. Like, she didn't look to me like that sickly or thin yet. You know, she just looked, because she started off pretty, well, you know. Well, Mia Farrow
1: is pretty tiny already. Exactly.
0: So, <laughs> so I was like, I don't, I don't know if I really see that yet. But then I, I just loved how subtle, mm-hmm. the gradual, you know, sinking of her eyes. And yeah, I, I loved that.
1: Yeah. And I think the last thing I want to mention is the music here. I think it's really interesting because there is pretty obvious music cues at the very beginning of this film and the very end that feel like horror, that feel like, Oh. oh, my God, what is happening here? But it's interesting the two hours and 16 minutes in between those sound cues, it's not really there. And I think it's important that it's not there because if it was, then there's no mystery. So it's right. like they set you up to be nervous and then make you wonder the whole movie. Am I just imagining things? Am I letting the movie get to me as opposed to what's actually happening? And then when the Antichrist is revealed, you're like, oh, I should have been here the whole time.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then the second time you hear that same, you know, lullaby, Ugh. it's it's almost haughty. Like, yep. ha ha, we got you. Got ya, this is yeah. the lullaby <laughs> she's saying to the Antichrist.
1: <laughs> like you do. I mean, even the Antichrist <laughs> needs a lullaby to go to sleep. That's kind
0: of comforting. We all do. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. All right. So let's talk about our favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes maybe that we haven't touched on enough uh, in this episode so far?
0: Um, well, we talked a little bit about when they were, you know, eating on the apartment floor. That was mm-hmm. one of the ones I was going to discuss. But another one that I really loved was kind of the reveal of the book. Oh, and- yeah scrabble Mm -hmm. scene you know where she's like rearranging the letters and And that's
1: so hard to do well like Uh, when i read it in the book i was like how do they even do this in a movie and make me care at all like we're just gonna play with scrabble tiles for five minutes but it works
0: it's so good like that initial shot where it's you know all them witches like it is just powerful Mm -hmm. and um yeah i really i just i loved that scene and i also i mean i'm also a book lover so when Mm -hmm. she was you know in that book place, finding another book to complement the one that, you know, her husband supposedly threw away in the trash. Yeah. I mean, I also like that scene.
1: Yeah. And also, like, speaking of production value earlier, the book itself, I mean, it's you. really painstakingly put together. Like, a Love lot that. of times you'll see movies and you're like, okay, you made two pages of a book and that's all you did. Uh, but this, like, looks like even just, like, the
0: cover and
1: the artwork and the design wow. of it, it's Legit. absolutely kind of stunning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I it looks so real. Both of the books, you know, the, the mm-hmm. red one and the black one. Yeah, another scene I really liked was a, that split second before she was actually raped when she's on the bed and it looks mm-hmm. like she's in the ocean oh, floating. Gorgeous. Oh, beautiful shot. I just I love it. it. Just really sticks out in my mind.
1: Yeah, I think the two yeah. scenes that stick out to me is first, the fight that they have, because I think one, it's really well acted by both Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes. Like, yes, this is an extreme situation, but anyone who's been in a knockdown drag out fight with their boyfriend or girlfriend or their spouse, like, this is a little too real. Like, where you're just right. like, things all of it, like, you're not even sure when it happens, but things reach that breaking point where now you're just screaming at each other instead of like, yep. actually talking to one another. No! Changing. I just want to go to Doctor Hill and get a second opinion. I won't let you do it, Rome. I mean, because it's uh, it's not fair to Saperstein.
0: Not fair to what are you talking about? What
2: about what's fair to me? Look, if you want a second opinion, you tell Saperstein and 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 let him decide. No, he, I he, he, I want Doctor Hill. <laughs>
1: At least if have that much person that's not I feel.
2: Rose, Rosemary, what is it? What? Pain stop. Stop.
1: Pain.
2: Stop. stop. Exactly. And,
1: but I also love it because, from a writing perspective, it it gives the audience hope in that moment. Like she's standing up for herself, she is doing it. We are rooting for her, and then the baby kicks, and we hate that baby in that moment, right? Because it it takes away all of her power. Like, yeah. she immediately goes into caretaking mode and, like, oh, everything really is fine. And you're like, no, things are not fine. What are you doing? <laughs> like,
0: yeah, please, but you just submit. She's like, okay, now I'm going to drink this gross-looking milkshake.
1: Uh, yeah, and now everything's fine. And the other scene that really sticks out to me is the scene in the phone booth. Uh, and it's another really impressive moment of Mia Farrow just acting with nothing but herself. Like, the camera is yes. close in on her face, and we see... The panic. We see the fear. We we see it all just in her eyes, and the, and the way she plays that scene is really impressive. Oh. And again, shows yeah. her as someone who is thinking on her feet, like pretending yes. to have this conversation. Like it's a great character moment too. So I just I love 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 that. Yeah,
0: moment. that was a really strong scene. That was great can really feel like, you know, the heat, too. She's, like, wiping away the sweat.
1: Uh-huh. All right, great. So from here, we'll move to the theme. So the theme is the theme of essentially a person who is just too polite for her own good and actually had trouble like finding what a word for this would be because most of the words for too polite are like the idea of like you're polite because you're trying to get something out of someone. And that's not who <laughs> Rosemary is. She's no. just polite to a fault where it's hurting her. Um, so as you watch the movie with this theme in mind, how did you feel like it played in?
0: Um, It played in a lot. And I actually, you know, I think it was a bit of her downfall in yeah. some ways, you know, letting in, this crazy old couple into our house like and you can distinctly see and feel her discomfort especially you know when she doesn't feel well and they're just like oh hey we're gonna come in we're just gonna like sit here and and knit away you know like you can feel it Mm -hmm. and it's really just quieting but um the acquiescing that she does Mm -hmm. you know I think that's a general theme throughout because I feel like, I know this, I'm going to get a whole into this thing, but uh, (laughs) I just feel like even the other characters that are trying to influence her, like they're also trying to be polite, Mm -hmm. not only to her, but like to Satan, They're just doing something (laughs) to appease someone else. You you have to be polite
1: to Satan. I mean, come on.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It just feels like everyone's acquiescing to someone else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned, like, it's it's her downfall. And that's all I could think as I was watching this movie again. It was like, oh, my God, Rosemary, just stand up for yourself and say you don't want to do this. Like, it starts
0: doctor in... you want to go to?
1: Right, I mean, it starts at the beginning where she knows that she doesn't want to go, go over to dinner with the cast of Etz, And she knows that her husband doesn't want to go. And then even after he says, like, no, I don't really want to go... She at that point kind of wants to go and she says like, Oh, I know it sounds phony, but I mean it. We don't have to go. Like, no, you don't mean that. You're, you're doing that to acquiesce to your husband. And then they end up going over for dinner. She takes this disgusting smelly charm from this woman that she just met, <laughs> even though she clearly hates it. The whole thing with the doctor and taking the doctor's advice without talking right? to anybody. You know, I mean, uh, you know, eating, eating the moose that was brought over, uh, you know, drink. Was-
0: the biggest part to me. Yeah. Guess.
1: And her husband it's telling just, her, like, Oh, it's always something with you so that was enough for her to be like, Okay, I'll guess I guess I'll eat it. And even when she knows things are terribly wrong, when her husband asks for the book, she just gives it to him. Like it's like, no. it's enraging. Like throughout are at the well, movie, you're just, like, no. Well you like, for what are once you
0: doing here? So that's
1: why the moment where she screams at all of them, you're liars, you're liars, like, means something. You're like, finally, finally, (laughs) she's just saying it. Like, granted, she had to be like, you know, kidnapped and drugged and, you know, had her baby (laughs) stolen from her womb. But she is finally standing up for herself. So I really think, like, everything bad that happens to Rosemary, it's not because of this, but it starts with her being too polite and not saying what she wants.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like what part that really stuck out to me was when she was speaking with Hutch and she was complaining about Guy being, you know, cold and different. He doesn't look at me anymore. And then when she sees him, in the next scene he has all these flowers for her and he's like hey i'm sorry i've been such a creep and she's like you have it at all it's my oh fault my i'm God. like girl what are you doing you know this is when you tell him what's up
1: right this and is your opening like,
0: <laughs> right and she's just like it's me it's not you you're great you Ugh. know and i'm just like oh what are you doing like, girl guy is
1: a dick just like it flowers aren't enough sorry like exactly yeah
0: he's being a creep yes yep. Tell him he's being a creep. Yeah.
1: At so. at the very least, tell him he's being a creep, and it, at best, please leave. Like leave this right. house because it's bad for you. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> you know that really just boggled my mind. You know, like yep. she was so intent on pleasing her husband that she hides it in her napkin, <laughs> like from her husband. I yep. was just like, this girl, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting that Guy uh, Guy knows exactly what to do to get her to do what he wants. Like that that comment about, you know, it's always something with you. Like she cannot stand the idea of her husband being displeased with her, even after all the terrible things that he's done to her. So he knows, I mean, just like the cast of knew how to get to Guy, Guy knows how to get to Rosemary.
0: Exactly.
1: All right. Uh, I think that kind of closes it up. Uh, if Honestly, if you haven't seen this, like, I don't know what you've been doing with your life. Um, I don't know if you were like me and just, like, kept forgetting to watch it. But, like, even if you've listened to this episode the whole way through and, you know, the ending is kind of pseudo-spoiled, like, it's still worth it. I think it's still just kind of a beautiful film, not only to look at, but to experience this, this, not only the horror, but the mystery involved. So I would highly, highly recommend checking out rosemary's baby all right so the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're tying this into uh which is darren aronofsky's mother so you at this point i'm sure have seen the trailer have heard about this movie so are you excited to see mother
0: oh hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) it looks phenomenal even if it has j-law which i'm not the Mm. biggest fan of okay but oh man it looks so good yeah, so I'm really on board.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm way on board, too. I like J-Law, but I'm glad she's getting back to um, acting. Uh Me Not too. this fucking bullshit she's been doing the last four right. or five years. Uh, because <laughs> I think she is, like, genuinely really talented. Like, if you go back and watch movies like Winter's Bone, like, she has raw talent. And she is, I think, there's a lot of overexposure going on, like, quote-unquote, America's Sweetheart stuff that will get on people's nerves. But I've seen this movie for Javier Bardem. Like, I... I, oh, I've never absolutely. I've never seen a performance of his that's bad like he's so good uh he's and so good. and he looks like so beautiful I mean it's interesting like yes one yes he does but devious in this movie like there's a scene in the trailer where she's kind of talking about their neighbors have a have a picture of them in their suitcase and his kind of retort of like why are you looking in their suitcase it's just like oh my god like that those 10 syllables you just uttered like make me want to run screaming from this room and the fact and the fact that we've got ed harris michelle pfeiffer donald gleason i mean it's is gonna be really good and it's aronofsky like say what you will about like aronofsky for a lot of people is hit and miss but he has not made a boring movie Like you are, you are going to be engaged when watching mother. And I personally, like, this is one of the movies, uh, towards the end of the year that I am most looking forward to.
0: Oh, it's going to be phenomenal. I'm so excited. I'm yeah. Like you said, like every movie he puts out, I always feel incredibly uncomfortable Right, and I am for it.
1: Excellent. Right on. All right. So before you take off, why don't you tell people one more time, uh, where they can read your work and how they can follow you on Twitter.
0: (sighs) You can follow me on Twitter at Mecca Melissa, and I also have my website where I do a lot of my design work, and I have a Medium account and Instagram all under the same name.
2: You put yourself in stupid places, yes I think you know it's true.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. And thanks to Melissa for being on her very first podcast. So be nice and go follow her on Twitter and all those other sites at Mecca Melissa and tell her what a great job she did. All right, so. The next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release episode on Darren Aronofsky's mother. So definitely looking forward to that. But in the meantime, you can connect with the show a bunch of different ways. You can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, pretty much any social media platform that's out there. We are on there under PC Case Study or Pop Culture Case Study. And if you want to help us out with your money, you can definitely do that. You can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy and donate on a per-episode basis and get some pretty cool rewards for supporting your local independent podcast. And if 140 characters or money is not your style, feel free to send me an email that tells me what you think of the show, what you think of the movies that are out, really anything. The email address is open. It's study at gmail.com, so be sure to send that off to me. That would be all right, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch.
0: Awesome. That was great. Thank well, thanks you. Thanks for having me. Oh,
1: I would love to have you on the show again. You're a great guest. So
0: Are we, like, off air now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, okay. have, to,
1: you don't have to perform <laughs> anymore. You're good. You're good. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, so
0: this is my first podcast. You just broke my podcast, Cherry. So,
1: yeah. I mean, don't you like lose all of your horror cred if you wait till Saturday to watch this? I mean,
0: Stephen King is like my number one bae. You know, (laughs) like, it is. I read that book, you know, it is not short three times.